0: and you may be seated. I can't tell you how um, special it's been for me to be preaching through the Gospel of Mark this Easter and what we're preaching through has been happening on the calendar. Um, Obviously, we're not going to make it to uh, the Mark account of the resurrection, but next week I'm so excited about the Easter message that is contained in the next passage uh, where Jesus is, in, is before the Sanhedrin, standing trial. I'm just so excited about it. And so for those of you that, uh, that are at home watching, if you feel safe, we're going to have plenty of socially distant seating. We'd love to have as much of our Grace Life family back next week for Easter Sunday. But I'm really excited about it. Um, so <clears throat> this, this Mark series has been very challenging uh, for me in many respects. And this is no different. Uh, I've entitled this week's message, Naked and Afraid. That's a good show, right? Anybody watch that show? It's a good show. So let me just start off by this, with this little story. <clears throat> I remember for, you know, a long time ago, uh, some of you may not know this, some of you may, I was, a, I was a head high school football coach for a long time. And I remember my second year as a head football coach at the high school level, we had a very good team. And we were about to play this much larger school that was number one in the state at the time at the next level up, the next classification. Now, our first year, we were undefeated. Uh, the second year, we started 5-0, and so we were very confident. Okay, let me rephrase that. The coach was very confident. <clears throat> but we were all confident, actually. We were fired up. And I just got to tell you. Before that game, right, we're 5-0. I've never lost as a head coach. I'm like, I'm undefeated as a head coach. And we are getting ready to play the number one team in the state that's the next level up. So it's a bigger school. I gave the best pregame speech of my entire coaching career. Now, I know this may surprise some of you, but I was so passionate that I even cried a little. I know you guys have never seen me do the pastor tears. I'm, you know, I'm speaking at this, you know, for the team in the locker room. So we went out, we were ready. We were confident, we were committed, we were dedicated. We we knew that we were going to play well and we were down 26 to six at halftime. Then the second half came back. I gave another speech. We lost 41 to 16. Our passion, our confidence, weren't enough to make up for the fact that we had weaknesses and we were playing a much stronger team. Now, that story, I didn't tell you that story because I wanted you to look down on my coaching career. I told you that story because I really feel like that's how many Christians are following Jesus today. Sincere, very passionate, confident, but completely overmatched. How passionate are your expressions of love and affection for Jesus? How dedicated and committed are you? Can you measure Your faithfulness or what might be your faithfulness by your passion? Have you ever wondered how your passion or your faithfulness would hold up if your commitment to Jesus were tested on the threat of your life? Or maybe even your family's life? You ever wonder about that? While that happens in some places in the world today, the odds are quite slim that any of us will ever face that test. But nevertheless, we like to imagine this fantasy, heroic life or death scenario as the real ultimate test of our faith and commitment to Jesus, right? Sadly, though, for most of us, it doesn't take the fear of death to make us run from Jesus. (laughs) We run daily. We abandon Jesus daily for far less Most of the time, we don't even notice when we're running away. So today's passage is about a series of different groups of people who failed the test of faith, people who never dreamed that they would and what they all have in common. So this is, Mark 14 is a long chapter, and there's, uh, you know, one more week of it. But this week, we're looking at chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, he's talking to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We preached on that last week. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know in other gospels that was Peter. And Jesus said to them, to the arresting crowd, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled so he gets permission for them to arrest him. And then they all left him and fled. And a young man followed with him, and nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized this young man, they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So now you can see why I've called it naked and afraid. Look at the history of the passage. What about man? What does he do, and why and how does he do it? For those of you that are new at Grace Life, we believe that every passage has to be looked at historically. What about man? What did he do theologically? What about God? What did he do, and why and how did he do it? And then and only then can we jump to the fun part of the devotional application. What about me? What am I supposed to do, and why and how do I do it? So let's look at the history of the history of this passage. I've called it Passion and bravery. So, first of all, you know who Judas and the Sanhedrin are. Some of this is a little bit of review, <clears throat> but they're made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and also some scribes/slash lawyers. And they all disagreed on quite a bit in their little group. This this group, this religious leaders in Jerusalem, called the Sanhedrin. But they all agreed on one thing: they absolutely hated Jesus. They were passionate about their hate for Jesus. See, Jesus was messing with their space. He was messing with their popularity. He was messing with their money. He was messing with their traditions, and he was calling into question their reputations. So they have, and we learn from other passages that we've preached on, they have a plan to murder Jesus in secret to avoid riots and also Roman retribution from those riots during this crowded Passover season when there are millions of people in Jerusalem. And with the help from their co-conspirator Judas... This is a perfect setup now. Remember, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's after Passover and the Lord's Supper. It's about 1 a.m. It's dark. This is ancient world. There's not a lot of lights. It's very dark. This is the perfect setup. Outside the city in an isolated garden under complete darkness. And Judas' attachment to Jesus was the same motivation as the Sanhedrin affinity for the temple. In other words, the reason Judas was following Jesus because he wanted the money, he wanted the power, he wanted the prestige that might be associated with being a close friend of Messiah. The same reason that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, had an affinity for the temple. That gave them their power, their money, their wealth, their influence. And a few days earlier, you remember Judas was berated by Jesus because Judas called out Mary, Lazarus' sister, for wasting that whole bottle of oil on Jesus? Judas was embarrassed by that. And the scripture says that night after Jesus called him out, Judas, don't yell at Mary. She's doing the right thing. The scripture says he went out that night in anger and conspired with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They began to cook up this scheme looking for a chance to grab Jesus. Fast forward to earlier tonight. During the Last Supper, Jesus actually predicts Judas would betray him. And right before the Last Supper, the Lord's table, Jesus kicks Judas out and says, go, get out of here. Go do what you're going to do now. So Judas has been singled out twice and rejected by Jesus twice in a very public fashion. Judas has had enough. This is his moment. And it is clear now Judas's aspirations for following Jesus will never materialize. Now he despises Jesus just as much as the religious leaders. And together, Judas and the Sanhedrin combine forces with Roman soldiers and temple police, and they go to arrest Jesus. And you remember in the scripture it said it was a big crowd. You know how many people it probably was, based upon the original language that we see, this word crowd? It was a legion. It was probably hundreds of soldiers Hundreds with swords, that's the Roman soldiers, and clubs, those are the temple police, and all the priests and their staff. This is a huge crowd at 1 a.m. in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane following Judas's lead, an indication not only of their disdain for Jesus, but listen, if you're going to bring a hundred soldiers with swords and clubs, you're also probably what? Very afraid of him. A lot of fear, a lot of anger here. But we see this... Effusive, that's a great word, isn't it? I used the synonym search on Google. That was really good. Effusive affection. See, Judas's job was to make sure they got the right guy. So he tells the priest, whoever I kiss, he's the one, sees him. <clears throat> so Jesus, Judas runs up to Jesus, and he's shouting, Rabbi, Rabbi, now let me explain to you why he says the name twice. In this culture, when you repeated a name twice, it was a deep, meaningful way to address someone. So if you say, Rabbi, Rabbi, it is you saying, my beloved Rabbi, my beloved Rabbi, the Rabbi that I, want, I love, the Rabbi that I trust. Jesus did the same thing with Peter. Peter, Peter, pray that you can avoid temptation. All throughout the New Testament, we see examples of Jesus using someone's name twice to try to really get their attention. You understand it's like an intimate way. And so that's the way Judas addresses Jesus. Rabbi, Rabbi. it is a false display of affection and loyalty. It's supposed to be a way you address someone if you have deep sorrow with them or you have pain or compassion on them. Empathy, it is a profound, sincere way to address someone, rabbi, rabbi. And he follows up with the scripture says, a very public display of adoration. And the scripture says a lavish kiss on the cheek. Here is the Greek word, kataphilio. You see the word philia, you get, we get like Philadelphia, love, brotherly love. Kata, great love. To kiss much, to kiss again and again, to kiss tenderly. That's the way Judas comes up and betrays Jesus. Rabbi, rabbi, and gives him an affectionate brotherly kiss. It's how one would display adoration and loyalty for someone you admire, like your rabbi or master. Culturally, this verbal declaration, rabbi, rabbi, combined with this cataphilio, this incredibly lavish kiss, is about as passionate a public expression of adoration one man can have for another. If I had to compare it to something, it'd be like what we expect worship of Jesus to look like or feel like in church, how we should come, Jesus, Jesus, and have this affection in our hearts, overwhelming, a desire to be with our Savior. If you wanted a public example of how to show affection for your rabbi, this is it. But as we know, it was all a complete show. Then we have self-righteous, self-righteous courage. Did we miss that one? Yeah, it's, okay, good. It's a little bit cut off, but. So when they seize Jesus, right, the scripture says there's this scuffle that breaks out. Peter pulls out a sword, chops the ear off, the high priest's assistant. You know, that's pretty good sword work. Unless he was aiming for something else. I don't know. If he was aiming for the ear, it's pretty good. But see, why does Peter do this? You know why? Because Peter has a point to prove. Remember Peter denied Jesus' prediction that they would all scatter? No way, Jesus, I will not scatter. In fact, I tell you, I am so committed to you. I am so dedicated to you. I will follow you to the death. Peter said, no way. Even if everyone else runs, all these other disciples, if they run, I will stay here fighting side by side with you. To me, the intensity of this action is on the same level as Judas's public display of affection with calling his name twice and the lavish kiss. So we have these two examples of supposed believers. One is and one isn't. Judas is not a believer. These excessive, over-the-top expressions of emotion for Jesus. One is pure hatred. The second is fake adoration. And the third is sincere love. In adoration, Peter is sincerely in love with Jesus, but he's weak, and there is no depth because we find out later that he would run as well. So let's look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do, and why and how does he do it? So here is Jesus surrounded by these two groups, one filled with hate, another who supposedly love him to death, and let's analyze what happens with these groups and what Jesus does. First of all, he is treated like a criminal. He addresses this over-the-top expression of force by the Sanhedrin, pointing out the hypocrisy and the ridiculousness of it all. You come to arrest me now in the dark, in the middle of this garden, like I'm some criminal? You could have arrested me anytime, day or night, but you were afraid to do it because you were scared that the people loved me too much. And then Jesus displays he's still in charge. He gives them permission to be arrested as part of another fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, these men were fulfilling prophecy and they didn't even know it. They considered themselves, these Sanhedrin, these Pharisees, Sadducees, the the priests, they considered themselves guardians of righteousness, didn't they? They never dreamed that they would come against Jehovah, yet here they are, driven by fear, with a huge posse, ready to arrest Jesus. They fear they would lose their way of life. They would lose their comfort. They would lose their money. They would lose their power and prestige. They fear and fail because they are, in fact, faithless. They have no relationship with Messiah like Peter does. This is probably easy to understand and maybe even dismiss. But let's look at the fact that Jesus was also betrayed for money by Judas. Matthew seven twenty two. Here's what Jesus said. I'm going to read this to you. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there's those two names again together. Remember we just talked about that? Rabbi, Rabbi, he's talking about Judas. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? I was with the disciples. I did all that stuff. And do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Judas's lavish public verbal and physical adoration was fraudulent. His failure is the same as the priest's. He's faithless. Judas certainly abandoned Jesus. He abandoned him well before the garden. His failure was he loved money more than Jesus. And once Judas Judas saw that Jesus and following him would not bring money and prestige he loved, he was done. What makes this failure so tragic is that Judas at one time identified very closely with Jesus, but not anymore anymore. But then we see this last part, they all run scared. Peter slices off the ear, right? But next, each disciple. Remember, when Peter said, if all else run, I will not. And what did all the other disciples say? Yeah, we won't run either. So it wasn't just Peter. They all said it. We'll never run. We're with you to the death. Each disciple, after declaring passionate allegiance to Jesus, even to death, they all run for their lives just as Jesus predicted they would. None of them ever dreamed they would abandon Jesus Clearly, though, they all overestimated their resolve, their commitment, and Peter's rebuke of Jesus' prediction and his bold and passionate sword-wielding, they weren't enough to keep him faithful, were they? Yeah, we're all with you to the death, Jesus. Not one was able to keep that promise. Then we have this mysterious young man, this naked, fleeing young man, we don't know for sure. Some possibly think it was Mark, but it's pure speculation, and it's fun to speculate. I kind of lean toward thinking it was Mark, but we really have no idea who it was. What we do know is he was following along, watching this all happen to Jesus, and some Roman soldiers see him, and they try to grab him, and he runs so fast, he leaves his cloak in their hand. Kind of like what happened with Joseph, in the life of Joseph. You guys remember when Potiphar's wife was tempting him, and she went out to grab him, and he ran so fast, she had his cloak in, the, in her hand. That's kind of what happens here. A follower not as dedicated as the disciples. He's a young man. He's probably a more immature believer, but still someone who identified with Jesus. When soldiers try to arrest him, he's gone, and there he is running through the night naked and afraid, abandoning his rabbi as well. See, all the believers in this story, all of them, Peter, the disciples, The naked young man, they all displayed passion and commitment, did they not? From sword-wielding to inspired verbal declarations of we will never leave you, from the most confident in Peter to the youngest, they all run for their lives as prophesied. And Jesus is alone with nobody left. So let's look at the personal section. What about you? What do you do and how are you supposed to do it? This was my Sunday sermon preview for this week on social media And uh, I got a lot of feedback on this one. Christians frequently exhibit expressions of devotion to Jesus far beyond our actual faithfulness. It's a hard-hitting one, isn't it? In case you were wondering, we are definitely just like them. Look what Paul says in Romans 10, 12 to 13. And by the way, this is a, a quote of Psalms that Paul writes this. It's an Old Testament verse that he quotes No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have what? Turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There's not a whole lot of room there, is there? (laughs) So how do you think you would have done in this scene in the garden? Every human in this story failed no matter what level their faith was. The unbelieving priests and Judas... The mature believers and Peter and the disciples, the young believer watching from the edges, they all failed. What did the priests, the soldiers, and Peter and the disciples and the naked young man all have in common? What did they have in common? Fear. All of them. The priests were fearful. Jesus was who he said he was, which was God. And that meant they were going to be accountable to him. Judas had fear of missing out. What do they call that? FOMO? FOMO? I'm hip. FOMO, fear of missing out on this world as dreams of power and wealth faded. The disciples and the young man, they also had fear, fear they would be arrested and executed if they stayed close to Jesus. And I believe we are all just like them. Even as passionate, committed believers, we all have a little of each one of them in us. Like Judas, and I would say this is true with Christians, I think we are really good at lavish displays of affection for Jesus, especially during worship. We might raise our hands. We might close our eyes. We might sing. Question, those words that Megan picks out for our worship, I don't know if you know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Those words are not surface stuff. They're very deep and very powerful. Do you really believe that you embrace and believe everything that you sing every week? I mean, think about it. The stuff that we sing about Jesus, can you say to yourself, that's me, absolutely, 100%. Everything you pray, everything you sing, like Peter, we often have something to prove, though, with our bold speech, our public displays of passion for Jesus, on display for all to see. I see it from Christians on social media all the time. Bold, inspiring, if you believe this post, share. I hate those. Don't send them to me in Messenger or on my timeline. I will block you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Then I see these posts with these inspiring slogans about following Jesus. Look, I'm not saying, and try to, I'm not saying it's wrong to express. Passionate, lavish love for Jesus or commitment or dedication to following him. I'm not saying, after all, as Christians, just like Peter and the disciples, we do love Jesus and we are passionate about him. But I believe our public display of allegiance and passion, just like the disciples and what we have in worship, although it is genuine and sincere, as was Peter's and the disciples, they were sincere, they were genuine. Sadly, they are, in fact, and let Track with me, they are extreme exaggerations of our actual faithfulness. Left to our own, according to Romans, we will rarely, if ever, lift up to the expectations of our lavish expressions of love and commitment and dedication. Rarely. I mean, if these guys couldn't, you could. What makes you so different? Here's what we should see ourselves as. We should see ourselves as desperate followers. Look what Psalm 73, 26 says. My flesh and my heart fail. My heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So you ever wonder what you would do in those life or death tests that we were talking about, that life or death scenario? I can tell you, without desperation, you will fail. 100. Did I just speak an emoji? My bad. My bad. I I feel so dirty. You want proof that you would fail in that situation? There is a long list of fears that you face every day that cause you to turn and run, even when you're confident you never would. You know what running looks like? it is any time and every time you put your agenda above that of jesus and his church and when we do that renders our expressions of faith and love and adoration and commitment very hollow does it not we also face the fear of losing our way of life our comfort level We also have fear of missing out on the world's pleasures that cause us to turn from Jesus on a daily basis. We also fear suffering and rejection for our faith or because of Jesus' teachings. We even run naked and afraid because of circumstances beyond our control. Sometimes people struggle with depression, anxiety, betrayal, guilt, or shame. All these things make us struggle. Your pastor struggles too. I'm just going to tell you, there are passages in the Bible. You know, the way we preach at Grace Life, if I'm preaching through a book, I'm not going to be able to skip anything because everybody will know. What's, why is he skipping that? I'm just being real. There are books of the Bible I have steered away from. I hate to say it because there are passages I'm afraid to preach. Sometimes maybe I'm afraid of being canceled. I don't know, but I'm afraid to preach them. Even the most sincere, lavish worship, the boldest expression of commitment and dedication will not guarantee your faithfulness. I don't care how emotional you make it. There's a better way. How about we make our expressions of passion and commitment become rooted in desperation and not self-confidence? Yes, we can be passionate about following Jesus. But it's not because we are humanly dedicated and committed. We recognize it is him who keeps us. That's why there is such tremendous comfort in admitting that without Jesus, we will all run naked and afraid like the young man daily. I love this. This is what people call the doxology. Many churches say it at the end of their service. It's the last parts of the book of Jude. This is the way we should express our our passion and commitment to Jesus right here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. I mean, think about it, church. What would inspire more confidence than that? What if Peter said, Jesus, you're right. Left to my own, even if I chop a guy's ears off, I know I will fail you miserably unless you keep me. See, without Jesus, first of all, we would be just like the faithless priests and soldiers in Judas. Afraid Jesus is God, that he would judge us for rejecting him. But also, without Jesus, we are no better than the bold, mature Peter and the disciples or the naked young man running scared. So my challenge for you this week... As we come through Holy Week now for the next six or seven days and we meet back here on Easter Sunday and I'm so excited about that message, my challenge to you this week is I would love for you to fill your Holy Week with countless expressions of lavish passion and commitment that are not rooted in confidence but in desperation. Rooted in a promise, not an effort. The promise right here at the end of Judas or Jude. So when we come together for Easter next week, I believe if we take this opportunity over the next six days to have countless expressions of lavish passion and affection and commitment to Jesus based on the concept in Jude of desperation, I believe next Sunday when we come together, it will be the best Easter we've ever celebrated together, ever, And that's what we want. Jesus, we are desperate. We are prone, as we learned a couple weeks ago, we are prone to wander. On a daily basis, fear causes us to turn our back on you and to run. Many times we don't even see that we're running. But we constantly put our agenda ahead of yours. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us Help us, because we, without your intervention, will run naked and afraid daily. Now I say this to you, church, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. We love you. Have a great week. I can't wait to celebrate Easter next Sunday as we continue in Mark.